Some time ago, I was having dinner with a group of people, some of uh, whom I'd never met before. And in the course of that meal, one of the people I didn't know, was a very articulate and successful older woman, uh, she asked me what I did for a living. To which I replied, well, I'm a local a pastor of a local church. And she looked at me very inquisitively, and after explaining that she wasn't a particularly religious person, she asked me, well, what does that job entail? Like, uh, you know, what is it that you actually do every day? And so I said, well, if I'm doing it right, then I'm making disciples of Jesus Christ and hopefully teaching other people how to do the same. She said, okay, well, how do you make disciples of Jesus Christ? And so I said, well, by telling them about him, of course, and then teaching them what he taught. And then she asked me, so how do you do that? What does that look like? And I said, well, um, in large part, I do that by teaching the Bible, uh, because the Bible is God's words to us, written down, by the way, in three different ancient languages by 40 different authors and 66 different books over three different continents spanning across 1,500 years of different cultures, different circumstances, different people groups, all with the same message that God is trying to tell us. And after a long pause, she said, well, that's interesting. And then with a subtle tone of skepticism in her voice, she then asked, so what is God trying to tell me? And I looked at her, past the hard exterior, past the skepticism and mistrust into a broken and lost soul. And I said to her, God is trying to tell you that he loves you. And before I could say anything else, before I could tell her how that message was sent to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, before I could say another word, her expression changed noticeably as she turned away in her seat. And just like that, the conversation was over. You see, the fact is, there will always be people who reject the truth about Jesus Christ, no matter how it is presented to them. You can try to dress it up. You can even water it down to make it a more culturally acceptable message. But at the end of the day, you cannot make Jesus more acceptable to those who reject him by trying to make him look more like whatever is popular in our culture. In fact, listen, the more you try to change the message of Christ to suit the masses, the more they will demand that you change it even further. That's a fact. And I know, uh, I know the modern church is always trying to come up with creative ways to share the gospel, which is absolutely fine. But it's worth noting that Jesus didn't actually command us to constantly come up with new and creative ways to share his message or to try and make it more palatable to a culture that is increasingly hostile toward the truth. No, he simply commanded us to share it with everyone. Because look, without any help from us, the gospel is the most relevant message we could ever share with this world. Not culturally acceptable, but relevant, okay? The problem is the church today has confused what is culturally relevant with what is culturally acceptable, but those are actually two very different things. 
right? When Noah was building a gigantic boat on dry land, that may have been the most culturally unacceptable thing he could do at the time. But make no mistake about it, on the cusp of a worldwide flood, building that boat was also the most relevant thing he could do at that moment in time. You understand the difference? When you confuse what is relevant to the culture with what is acceptable to the culture, you compromise the truth and you walk away uh, from Jesus Christ. Those original disciples, listen, they walked with Jesus, right? Living out and sharing the most culturally relevant message this world has ever known, the gospel. And yet Jesus said to those same disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 19. In other words, the world hates you for living the most relevant life you could ever hope to live. You see, what, what I was telling uh, the woman at the dinner table that night may not have been acceptable to her, but it could not have been more relevant. Because walking with God is the only way that you will ever live the life you were created to live. You, you understand, every other version of living apart from God is a counterfeit. It's a fake, it's a fallacy. When you're not walking with God, you're actually pretending to be someone other than the authentic person that God created you to be. Which means the most relevant and authentic life you could ever live is one spent walking with God. But I'll tell you, that won't make you popular. The moment I said what I said to the woman at the dinner table, any chance I might have ever had of being accepted into her social circle was over. And yet this is the truth that so much of the modern church doesn't seem willing to accept today. The fact that walking with God, although the most relevant life you could ever live, that's also the most culturally unacceptable life you could ever live. But there seems to be this overwhelming need for Christians today to try and prove to the world that we're the cool kids. Like we're just like them in every other way, that we can be like the world and still love Jesus because we desperately want to be relevant, but we've confused what is relevant with what is acceptable. And yet if you just read what Jesus and those early disciples said about walking with God, it becomes crystal clear. Walking with God means rejecting the ways of this world, which is never going to be a culturally acceptable way to live your life, at least uh, as far as popular culture is concerned. The Apostle Paul said, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 2. The apostle John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, 15. And when Jesus was praying to the Father about his disciples, he prayed, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And lest we think he's just talking about those guys right there with him, he continues his prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, these guys right here, but also for those who will believe in me. That's all of us. 
through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you've sent me. John 17, 14 through 21. Okay, there's a, there's a reality about walking with God that we may not want to accept, but that doesn't make it any less real, okay? To walk with God, you must walk away from some other things. To walk with God, you're going to have to walk away from some other things in your life. That will, uh, that will set you apart, by the way, and often set you at odds with the culture around you, which we're going to see in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the history of creation with the first half of a, a two-part message today about walking with God. Okay, so let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Genesis chapter 5. And see what life looks like when you're truly walking with God. All right, we'll begin uh, the first five verses. So Genesis 5, 1 through 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So we open up the beginning of chapter 5 with the end of the account of Adam's life, which started back in Genesis 2-4, and happens, by the way, to be the first mention of a book in the Bible. This genealogy that chronicles the history of early humanity probably was written on a clay tablet, and the first striking detail about this book that we notice is the fact that these first early humans, Adam and his descendants, had much longer lifespans, of course, than humans do today, because in part their bodies would have been much more pure uh, genetically before the flood. Right? First of all, because of the degenerative effects of sin on the human gene pool would not have accumulated at this early stage in the history of humankind to the extent, of course, that it has today, thousands of years later. And also uh, because the environment in the pre-flood world was very different. Right? We, we learned this early on in this sermon series. There was a protective vapor canopy over the earth before the great flood described in Genesis 1, 6, and 7. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Okay, the word expanse in verse 6, which some uh, translations have as firmament, is the ancient Hebrew word rakia, which is literally translated as expanse or canopy. So when God says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters, he's creating our atmosphere by separating the waters from the rest of the heavens. And then if you continue on to verse 8, and God called the expanse heaven, the heavens there being the Hebrew word shamayim, which includes what we refer to as space along with the earth's atmosphere. So he's creating our atmosphere by separating the waters from the rest of the heavens, and yet there were also waters above the expanse, or above the firmament as described in verse 7, constituting a vast blanket of water vapor over the earth prior to the flood. And again, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the fact that there would have been many health benefits to having that canopy in place. For instance, a vapor canopy would have been highly effective in filtering out uh, ultraviolet radiations. 
cosmic rays, right? Other destructive energies from outer space, which of course we know now are well-known sources of both somatic and genetic mutations or uh, sources of diseases and all kinds of physical maladies and sickness, which obviously have an immensely negative effect on human and animal health, and particularly on our longevity. Additionally, the vapor canopy would have also provided a much higher atmospheric pressure than we have now, which scientists a long, long time ago used to argue was a case against creationism. But we know today that modern medical science has actually proven that hyperbaric pressures, increased uh, atmospheric pressures, are extremely effective in combating disease and in promoting good general health. So all of this would have contributed to the ages of, of those early human beings in Scripture before the flood uh, lasting so long, as we see in this chapter. And uh, one of the questions that uh, always comes up anytime we talk about the history of these early humans is, who did Cain and his brothers marry, right? Because the logical answer is their sisters, which uh, understandably grosses people out when you say that. But a couple of points to keep in mind here. Before the flood, there would have been no genetic harm, first of all, in close marriages, particularly early on, because of the reasons we just discussed, whereas many generations later, after the flood, during the time of Moses, genetic mutations had accumulated to the point where such marriages would have been very uh, genetically dangerous. And so incest was at that point prohibited in the Mosaic law, which is also what made it a moral issue both then and today, but, but not in Cain's lifetime. So uh, as repulsive as the idea is to us today, morally and physically, as it should be, uh, listen, for Cain to marry his sister in his day would have been actually quite natural. And furthermore, the scenario where siblings had no choice but to marry each other probably lasted for a much shorter period of time than most people realize. In Genesis 1.28, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and, and what? And fill the earth, he said. So Adam and Eve are responsible for filling the earth. And verse 4 of this chapter that we just read tells us that Adam and Eve had both sons and daughters. And interestingly, the first century uh, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, he references the ancient rabbinical tradition concerning Adam and Eve's children in his book Antiquities of the Jews, where he says that the number of Adam's children, as says the old tradition, was 33 sons and 23 daughters. That's a quote. Now, whatever the actual number was, Given their health and long lifespans, I think we can say with confidence that during this early era of humanity, the world would have been populated quite quickly. In fact, it's been estimated that if Adam, during his lifetime, saw only half the children he could have fathered grow up, and if only half of those got married, and if only half of those who got married had children, then conservatively, Adam would have seen more than one million of his own descendants in his own lifetime. Based on those calculations, that would mean that by the time of the great flood, there would have been seven billion people on earth. That's the same as today. When Jesus was asked by his disciples when the end of this age would come, he said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 28, 37 through 39. That was, that was by the way, uh, not a culturally acceptable message 
at the time Jesus gave it any more than it is now, where there are so many mirror images in the cultures of the world today, including ours with the cultures of the world in Noah's day, as we see in chapter 6, right down to the number of the people on the earth when that first age was ended. It may not have been a culturally acceptable message, but it could not have been more relevant. And as we'll see as we continue the story, there was a stark contrast between those who walked with God at the time and everyone else. Okay, now the rest of chapter 5 is a genealogy of the descendants of Adam, and although at a, at a, at a cursory reading it can seem like nothing more than a boring list of names, we should never allow that to lessen the impact or significance for us of this or any other genealogy in Scripture because they are, in fact, vitally important in testifying to the validity and historical accuracy of the biblical stories and the people that are in them, both to us today and to the people of ancient times as well, which is why the first written book ever recorded in the Old Testament is a genealogy of the first Adam, and the first written book recorded in the New Testament, Matthew 1, is a genealogy of the second Adam, Jesus, which again highlights the importance of genealogies to understanding our origins and also the thorough nature of Scripture in preserving the history of mankind all the way back to Adam. And, and just as one other example of that, outside of the Bible, there's an ancient document called the Sumerian King List which was discovered around the turn of the last century. And it's another one of our oldest recorded histories, which happens to be a genealogy of the ancient kings of Sumer, which is now uh, in southern Iraq, in the Mesopotamian Valley. And it includes a story about a great flood. Right? And interestingly enough, the Sumerian king list records the ages or the reigns of the kings before the great deluge or the great flood as being thousands of years old and the ages of the kings after the great flood as being in line with our current life expectancies, which of course supports the biblical record of antediluvian people or uh, pre-flood people living much longer than post-flood people. And yet the ages of the Sumerian kings on that particular genealogy are much longer than those of the patriarchs here in Genesis 5. Now, stay with me because this is where it gets fascinating. Because there were two different prominent methods for mathematical calculations at this time period when the Sumerian genealogy was recorded. There was the decimal method and there was the sexagesimal method. And in the Genesis genealogy in chapter 5, there are 10 patriarchs or rulers listed before the flood, if you include the first man, Adam, and the flood hero, uh, Noah. While in the Sumerian genealogy, there are only eight kings listed before the flood because they left out the account of the first Sumerian man and the flood hero on this particular list. And so historians have discovered that if you take the eight Sumerian kings and the eight patriarchs of Genesis 5 between Adam and Noah and place them side by side and then convert the ages of the Sumerian kings from the sexagesimal system to the decimal system, the ages are exactly the same as the Genesis patriarchs. That cannot be a coincidence. By the way, that's one sample of the ancient historical writings outside of biblical scripture that support the biblical account of the creation story where genealogies play such a significant role in the validation of the history of those stories and the people who are in them. 
All right, so now, as we move on through chapter five, a pattern develops that establishes the line of Seth, which if you remember from last week, was a lineage that represented blessing and hope and salvation in contrast to the line of Cain. Just to be clear, there were uh, certainly many other children birthed in this line of Seth during this time, but these are the patriarchs, the leaders, so they're the ones who are written down and recorded in the genealogy. And uh, just one other observation for clarity, the Enoch and Lamech in the line of Cain mentioned back in chapter 4 from the last sermon are not the same people as the Enoch and Lamech listed in chapter 5, which again is in the line of Seth. These are simply family names that at times are repeated, just as names are often repeated in our families today. So with each section of the rest of the chapter, the number of years that each patriarch lived is given before he fathered a son, then the number of years that he lived after he fathers a son, and then his total number of years on earth, and then in each case, save one, it says, and then he died. Which again is this pattern that's established throughout the chapter until we get to verse 24, where that pattern is interrupted. So let's skip down and read verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's a stark contrast, a break, from the pattern of the rest of the chapter, where it says that all of the other patriarchs died but not Enoch, because he walked with God. And when it says Enoch walked with God, by the way, we know that means a lot more than just believed in God. Because Hebrews 11.5 tells us that Enoch lived his life in a way that pleased God. And uh, also in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, that phrase walked with God is translated directly as pleased God, which means Enoch lived his life in a way that was pleasing to God. And yet we know even more than that about Enoch because Jude the brother of Jesus tells us in Jude 14 that Enoch was a prophet. In fact, when Jude writes about Enoch, he's quoting from the book of Enoch, which is an apocryphal writing, not part of the Bible, which means it's not the infallible word of God, but it is most certainly a historical record written by Enoch that is obviously useful in furthering our understanding of historical events, and obviously at least parts of it can be trusted as accurate and true, as again, Jude himself quotes from 1 Enoch 1.9, here in Jude 14 through 16, in the Bible. Furthermore, much of the book of Enoch, just so that you know, is included in the Qumran, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's the point. When Enoch is described as having walked with God, we know that he was much more than just a believer in God. We know from Jude that he was a fearless prophet of God who told of the coming of the Christ and judgment upon all who would reject him, which you can rest assured was not a culturally acceptable message. But it could not have been more relevant, especially when you factor in the imminent flood that would bring judgment upon all the earth and foreshadow the end of this current age of the earth. And so, uh, to be sure, these verses about Enoch are very intentionally meant to highlight the contrast between a man who truly walked with God and pretty much everyone else. And then chapter 5 closes out with the birth of Noah and his son Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, by the way, when you, when you look 
at how all of the patriarchs' lifespans overlapped, it becomes evident that Seth died when Noah was 14 years old, meaning Noah probably knew Adam's son. <laughs> That's amazing to think about. All right, let's continue. Chapter 6, starting with the first four, four verses. 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So in addition to the human condition growing rampantly sinful, as we'll see, we're now introduced to the Nephilim, who were the product of these sons of God reproducing with the daughters of men. And the other three times this phrase, sons of God, the other three times it's used in the Old Testament, Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and 38.7, it always refers to angels or these divine beings. Furthermore, the translators of the Septuagint translated the phrase sons of God as angels. Also, Jude mentions the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, Jude 6, and then goes on to say in Jude 7 that like Sodom and Gomorrah, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Every time I preach this passage of scripture, there are two or three people who give me a lot of heat about this because they cannot accept the idea that these divine beings came down and had sex with, with human women. In fact, there are scholars who go to great lengths to explain this away. Just read it. You just have to read it. Particularly if you read it in the original Hebrew, there's nothing to argue about. It's very clear what was going on here, right? Again, from the book of Enoch, Enoch says, And it came to pass that the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. The angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. They took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them, and they taught them charms and enchantments. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants, and there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt in all their ways. So the sons of God, fallen angels, divine beings, bred with human women, and had offspring called Nephilim. That is what the word says. Who would have then been half man? Half angel. The word Nephilim, by the way, in the ancient Hebrew meant fallen ones, while the earliest Greek translators rendered the word to mean giants, which would explain the statement that these were the mighty men, men of renown. They may well have had superhuman strength. Some have even suggested that the Nephilim are the source of the demigod myths in other cultures like the Greek gods. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know is that this was a satanic plan to wipe out any possibility of a Messiah. You understand, these just weren't angels who thought, boy, they look good. I think we'll go hang out with them. This was much bigger than that. Because if Satan could get enough of his angels to intermarry with human women, he could pollute the entire genetic pool of mankind with a satanic corruption, making the human race unfit for bringing forth the promised Messiah. 
This was the end game of the enemy. Theologian James Boyce said the Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother. So if Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the deliverer could not come. This was the end game. This was the whole point. The most frightening part about that is it almost worked. The human race had become so infected by evil that God wiped out the entire population of the earth, save one family. And we just read that the Nephilim were there in that time and then after. Why do you think God commanded Joshua and Moses before him to go into the promised land and wipe them all out? Because of the giant races that had infected the gene pool. It was the plot of the enemy, his strategy to nullify the possibility of the Messiah coming. This was his end game. By the way, it's not a culturally acceptable message today. I get it. The fact that God wiped out nearly all of humanity. It's not very culturally acceptable. Yet it could not be more relevant for that culture or this as every day we come one step closer today to the end of days. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 5 through 10. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations, sorry, of, the, of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It says Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so again, the evil had become so rampant, so widespread, so horrific, that God decided to annihilate the entire human race except for one man and his family. Why? Why that man and why his family? Well, it tells us because that man walked with God. Okay, clearly there's a profound contrast between Noah who walked with God and everyone else because walking with God is more than just believing in God. Walking with God is more than just believing in Him. It's doing something about what you believe which may never be culturally acceptable by the way but it will always be culturally relevant. And obviously Noah was the only one in his time willing to be different. He was the only one in his time willing to be set apart, willing to walk away from the ways of the world no matter how popular they may have been. You see, walking with God means walking away from the world. This, by the way, it's the first point in our outline that again will span over this message as well as next Sunday. So today as we close out this first half of this sermon, We'll spend the last few minutes today focused on just this first point of the sermon, that to walk with God, you have to walk away from the world. Listen, uh, not isolate yourself from the world. J Jesus very clearly tells us, as we read earlier, that he sent us into the world, but not to be of it, not to be like it, and not to share in its ways. Noah lived in the world, but the way that he lived could not have been any more different than the culture around him. Yet I want to be clear about something else here. Noah also didn't earn his way into God's favor. Verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't earn it. He found it. 
The fact is, as a human being, Noah was as guilty of sin as any other, as we'll see later in the story of his life. And when verse 9 says that Noah was blameless in his generation, that does not mean that he was sinless. There's a difference. The truth is, as believers and followers of Christ, we're all blameless because of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. We're all blameless in his sight. But none of us is sinless. In fact, when verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, the word favor in the ancient Hebrew word is, is Cain, which is literally translated as grace. We know that grace from God is not earned. The apostle Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Noah found grace from God just as every single follower of Jesus Christ does today. And because of the unmerited grace that has been given to us, we can walk with God just as Noah did then. We can choose to live righteously just as Noah did then. Listen, we can live counter to the culture just as Noah did. We can lead others away from destruction and into the salvation that God provides just as Noah did. That's why, uh, that's what you do when you walk with God. In fact, that's what it looks like to walk with God. And as a result of the grace of God in Noah's life, he did far more than just believe in God. Hebrews eleven seven says that Noah reverently feared God, and even more than that, the apostle Peter described Noah as a herald of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5. And that word herald in the ancient Greek, it's the word kerux, it means preacher. Like Enoch, a prophet who proclaimed the truth to the culture around him, and in doing so lived a life counter to his culture. Noah as well was a preacher who proclaimed the truth about God and in doing so also lived a life counter to his culture only because of the grace of God in their lives. Both men were said to have walked with God. Both proclaimed the truth about God to a generation around them. Listen, a generation who rejected the message. You understand, this is what it means to walk with God, it's not cultural acceptance, it is spiritual relevance because of the grace of God at work in our own lives. Which means living a life that emulates the life of Christ. It's being so close in your relationship with him that you hear the voice of his spirit within you guiding your every move. It's proclaiming the truth about him to every, uh, every person you can, every opportunity you get, whether it's at a dinner table or on a platform or in a private conversation, knowing that most of those people you talk to will reject the message. See, walking with God has absolutely nothing to do with being accepted or trying to make Christianity more attractive to the world. No, it's about sharing the truth with the world, no matter how culturally unacceptable that truth may be, and then pleading with God for his grace to invade their very souls. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That is the heart of a man 
who walked with God. And the question that each one of us really needs to answer today is, am I truly walking with God? And to help you answer that question, I'll ask you one other question. If tomorrow you stopped believing what you believe today about Jesus, if tomorrow you stopped believing what you believe today about Jesus, how would your life be different tomorrow than it is today? What would change? Right? Other than probably not coming here anymore, what would be different about your life? Would it be obvious to everyone who knows you that something is clearly very different about you, that something has drastically changed? Would your life look different to them? Or would it look exactly the same? Would they notice any change at all? Would the places you go to be different because the places you go to now, you only go to because of Jesus? Would the things you do be different than the things you do now because you only do them because of Jesus? Would the conversations you have be different because the conversations you have now you only have because of Jesus? Would the relationships you have be different because the relationships you have now you only have because of Jesus? Would your life look radically different tomorrow than it does today if you didn't have faith in Christ or would it look exactly the same? Because when you walk with God, your life stands out from the culture around you. It has to. You go places and you do things and you have conversations and you enter into relationships that you never would without Jesus. You understand, I'm not asking you if you believe in him today. I'm asking you if you're walking with him today. Because if you are, well, then you're well acquainted with rejection. You're used to not fitting in with the crowd. You understand that cultural acceptance is actually not the goal of the church, and you're willing to do whatever it takes to walk with him, which we're going to talk more about next week. See, the truth is, walking with God, that is the only way for you to live the life you were created to live because every other version of living apart from God, it's a counterfeit. It's a fake, it's a fallacy because you're pretending to be someone other than the authentic person that he actually created you to be. Which means the most relevant and authentic life you could ever live is the one spent walking with God. But I'm just here to tell you that is never going to make you popular. And so if you're going to spend your life walking with him, then you're going to have to get over the desire for acceptance by our culture. In fact, you'll have to utterly abandon it because it's never going to happen as long as you're walking with Jesus. What will happen is at times you will find yourself being hated by the world for the message you bring to it. I know that because Jesus promised us that. So look, if your goal is acceptance, 
well then go on and run with the world. But if you want to be truly relevant, powerful, prophetic, if you want to be a voice of truth to this generation, then forever turn your back on the ways of this world and start walking with God. Let's pray.